Okay, well, let's pray, and we'll uh, look in some scripture. Father, thanks that you're the Lord of all life, as the song says. Lord, thanks that though you abide in heaven, you are not removed from the earth, but your presence is with us by your Holy Spirit. And uh, Father, we recognize that apart from you, Jesus said in John 15, we can do nothing. That is, apart from your Spirit at work in us or at work through us, Lord, we can accomplish nothing of spiritual or eternal value. And so we want to commit ourselves to you and your Spirit's leading this morning. I ask that you'd help me speak clearly the things from the text this morning. I pray that all of us would have hearts to hear what you want to say to us. Father, help us to be those who do your word and not just hear it. We commit ourselves and our time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the text this morning, I'm thinking of messages from the last Sunday in December and the first Sunday in January this month about considering for this year a, a picture of your life this year. You remember as a house that you'd build, Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, by wisdom a house is built, by understanding it's established, by knowledge its rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Anyway, just a question. How's your house building going? Are you building with wisdom and understanding and knowledge? And along that, with that, we asked ourselves the question, if 2005 was the last year of our life on earth, what do we need to accomplish? And are the things we're doing, are they going to help us accomplish the things God has for us this year? So that's just a, a reminder question for you. And now we're back into John this morning. We're in John 7. Two weeks ago, we finished John 6. These are lengthy chapters. I think we had about five messages in John 6. We're going to be in John 7 this morning. And we're going to take the first 13 verses. So if you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to be hanging out. Let me read John 7, 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. And you guys remember Galilee is up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. Israel is roughly divided by north and south, Judah in the south, and Galilee area, or the old Israel area up in the north. He was unwilling to walk in Judea, that is, in the south, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Jews, the Feast of Booths, was at hand. And let me just say again, this is the September or October area uh, feast. And by the way, the Jewish calendar with ours, it doesn't uh, line up straight with ours. If we said uh, their April isn't a straight April month to us, uh, the months tend to overlap. One of our months would end up intersecting a couple of their months. So the Feast of Booths was in September or October. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. And it's a week-long feast in which the Jews would assemble in Jerusalem. And they did two things. They celebrated the harvest, the ingathering, for that year. But they did so in booths because it was also a remembering of God's provision for them in the wilderness when they dwelled in tents during that 40 years of migration in the wilderness before they came into the land. So it's one of their three great holidays when they'd all go to Jerusalem to do this. And in fact, this still goes on in Israel today. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. 
for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. The focus I'm going to have on this passage this morning is related to the opposition Jesus faced in his public ministry, to the opposition Jesus faced in his ministry. Here in verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews, that is the Jewish leaders down in the south in Judea, primarily centered around Jerusalem. This is opposition from without. Now think through this for just a little bit. And you know, as you read the gospel stories, you see this. This opposition took a couple of forms. One form was the Pharisees were routinely trying to discredit Jesus. So these are the stories where they send somebody with a question. Ask him a question so that we know we'll get him this time. He'll have to say something that will indict him either to the Romans or to the Jews, but we'll get him to indict himself in some fashion. We'll quiz him in public, put him on the spot, and basically take him down a few rungs on the ladder. This was one thing. The other thing, though, was here it says, and Jesus knew this, that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. They were seeking to kill him. And, of course, this is where the outside opposition ends, as it were, later in the story, of course. Uh, From their perspective, in the end, they're successful, right? Because they get Jesus crucified. But from the outside of Jesus' smaller world, he faces opposition from the Pharisees. And remember, though they are not the military leaders of Israel, Rome is, yet they wield great political and social influence. And so their opposition was very significant. And in the end, of course, they're able to get Rome with them to crucify Jesus and get rid of their political opposition. And remember from their point, um, Jesus was a was a thorn in their side. They kind of have this semi-good thing going with Rome. Rome kind of leaves them alone. They leave Rome alone, and things are good. They have political, religious prestige and power. They're wealthy, these guys are. And their world is kind of acceptable to them as it is. Well, here comes this Johnny-come-lately from nowhere, from Galilee, from Nazareth, and he's rocking their world. He is someone to be reckoned with because he's performing miracles that can't be addressed. They're not sure how to address them, what to say about them. He's developed a multitude of followers who are following him instead of them. And also, this comes up later, they are afraid. Should Jesus take upon himself the mantle of a military Messiah and fail, what are the repercussions for their world? 
So basically, status quo for these guys is okay. This is what they want to maintain, and Jesus is rocking the boat. And so they want to get rid of him. So they try to humiliate him or embarrass him in public, and ultimately they want to kill him and get rid of him for good. So this is opposition from without. And it's understandable from the Pharisees' perspective, so to speak, because they're trying to maintain things the way they are. Now, somewhat more problematic, though, is additional opposition he faces, and this is opposition from within. Opposition from within. The last two verses of chapter 6, Jesus said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knows that within his most intimate circle, the twelve chosen disciples or apostles, there's one, Judas, who will betray him. He knows that he has that kind of unfaithful opposition from within his own ranks. Beyond that, verse, verses 3 to 5, his brothers, these guys he grew up with, who should have known him as well as anyone, they don't, verse 5 says, not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, not only do they not believe in him, but they're chiding him. They're rebuking him. You seek to be known publicly. You just want to develop a public reputation. You're just a uh, publicity monger. So don't stay back here. They're chiding him. You go down where everybody can see your glorious person. You know They don't believe in him. Or they say, show yourself to the world. You're a glory seeker. So, you know, go on. We're too small area for you. You better go where the big times are. They don't believe in him. His brothers that grew up with him, and, and at some point, you guys, this, this strikes home at some point, people who he knew and knew him, and probably we don't know how old his father Joseph was when he died, but Joseph's not in the picture. Jesus could even, as the eldest son, have had a hand in helping raise these guys. And they're chiding him in unbelief now. He has opposition from the Twelve and Judas. He has opposition from his own siblings here. Opposition from without and opposition from within. Uh, the stuff from within is always more painful. The third thing, though, is look at Jesus' response to the opposition. Look at his response. The first thing related to his response is, Jesus knew his appointed end, but he did not, what I will say, tempt God. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus knows who he is. He knows why he's on the earth. And he knows how his life will end. And he knows when his life will end. So if he wanted to be, I don't know, of a different attitude, knowing the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him, he could go down and kind of shove it in their face a bit. He could have a little fun with this. He could go down to stir up the hornet's nest knowing that they can't touch him anyway because it's not the father's time, place, or manner in which he's going to die. But he doesn't. He doesn't tempt God. He doesn't produce for himself trouble that he could avoid. And in this sense, he, he shows the same kind of wisdom that I believe you and I are called on to today. There's a proverb that says, the wise man sees trouble down the road and he either does one of two things he makes provision for it or he gets out of the way and that's what you see Jesus doing here he's not at this time down in the south because he's avoiding unnecessary trouble now of course at another time and a little later he will go there he's not afraid to 
but he's not going to do something to provoke trouble he doesn't need to. I think this is wise, it's prudent, it's a great example for us. And then the second thing is, he kept his eyes on what God wanted him to do. He kept about the business of doing God's will, of fulfilling God's goals for him. So what this means in John 7 is, he gets rid of his pesky brothers by saying, I'm not going down there now, and they, they head south. And then without them, of course, in the middle of the week, the text will say further, he goes down on his own. Now, it was God's will that he show up at this feast, but just not, not the way and not the time that his brothers were chiding him to. He didn't take their bait, as it were. But it was still God's will that he goes down there. And in the end of John 7, we've got this great passage. You remember Jesus has told us he's the bread of life. Well, in John 7, he's going to tell us that he's the water of life. And it's this great scene, the last day, the great day of the feast. God wants him there. So he's there. So the point is, he doesn't get sucked into unnecessary waste of time and trouble on one hand. And more importantly, he keeps doing his father's will. He keeps about doing the things he knows his dad wants him to do. Whether there's opposition from without or opposition from within, he doesn't take the bait to trouble, and he keeps doing the things he knows God wants him to do. Now, you remember Jesus said that if you're his follower, you will face opposition or you will face trials or troubles in this world also. It's not if you and I as Christians face trial and opposition. It's when and it's what kind. And so certainly... Jesus' example in John 7 is a good lesson for us. What do you and I do when we face opposition? When you experience the opposition that Christ promises us, what do we do? The first thing I would say we need to do, and Jesus does not do this because he doesn't have to. If you face opposition from without or from within, close to home or far from home in your own life, the first thing I think we need to do is to reassess our situation. Reassess our situation. Let's assume that some of the opposition is criticism, especially if that's the case. Reassess your situation. The reason I say this is because of this. Jesus knew at any given point, because of the unique communion he had with his Father, he knew where God wanted him, what God wanted him to do, these things. In fact, John has told us that Jesus as a man on earth had the Holy Spirit poured out on him without measure. That is in a unique fashion, in a way that you and I do not. We have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's our teacher, but it's different than Jesus had. So at any given point, he knew where he was to be and what he was to be doing. You and I are not that good. We're a little bit more fickle. And it's not unusual that we may be thinking we're doing what God wants us to be doing, and we might be missing the mark. So if you face opposition from outside or from inside, and especially if the opposition is criticism, be willing to stop and reassess. Lord, am I really hearing you? Am I where you want me to be? Am I doing what you want me to do? If you reassess and realize you're not, and that the opposition, God has allowed the opposition because he wants you someplace else, then change course. That's the opportune time to do that. Eat humble pie if you need to. Whatever that looks like, be willing to change course after you reassess. If you reassess and you say, you know, Lord, I've prayed about it, I've thought about it, I've 
counseled with others about it. I've got the testimony or the wisdom from others. And I believe I'm where God wants me to be, doing what God wants me to do. Then you get on about doing the thing God's called you to do. And this is important. Remember this, that in the end, uh, God's going to say to us when we show up at our home one day, you know, Junior, did you do the things I gave you to do? There's no question of our acceptance in heaven. That's all a given. But related to rewards, Junior, did you do what I gave you to do? So if you and I realize that we're where God wants us to be and we're doing the things he wants us to do, we've reassessed and we know that's the case, then we need to finish whatever it is, despite whatever the opposition is, whether it's from outside, enemies, so to speak, distant opposition, or if it's from within our own personal camp, our friends, our family, those who know us and maybe should know us better but still think we're out to lunch when we're really not, we've got to finish the race. We've got to finish whatever work it is God has for us to do. And we do this whether or not there's cheerleaders to cheer us on. And we do this even if we don't have the support of people near us and dear to us to encourage us. We finish the work God's given us to do. You reassess, you know you're where God wants you to do, doing the things God wants you to do. Then you dig in your heels and you say, I'm going to finish the race no matter what. No matter what the opposition looks like, whether it's from friend or foe, I know, God, that this is what you have for me to do. The third thing uh, related to this is, especially towards those who are close to you and have been critical of you or have been your opposition, this opposition from within, temper your disappointment, temper your outlook of your intimates who have been part of your opposition. Think about this for a minute. In this passage, when it says his brothers, his own family didn't believe in him, remember who these family members are. Do you remember two of these brothers by name? James and Jude. Two of Jesus' half-brothers here become one of the key apostles in the church in Jerusalem and the assumed author of the epistle of James and the assumed author of the epistle of Jude. Now, Jesus has knowledge you and I don't. Maybe he knew this then. But he's able to write off his siblings' disparaging remarks and maybe in part because he's aware what God has for these guys. You and I can temper our disappointment with others because we don't know where God's going to lead them. They may end up being James and Jude. They may come to recognize at a later date, if they're not Christians, they may come to recognize Christ and embrace Christ, which for us should be our ultimate goal for anyone. Or if they oppose us now, they may come to realize down the pike that God is in what we're doing. He is orchestrating where we're at and what we're doing. And they may end up being our advocates instead of our opposition. We don't know. So when you face that opposition from within, from your intimates, from your friend and family, temper your disappointment because you don't know where God's going to take them. Don't consign them to this cubicle in your mind of foe, betrayer, whatever. But realize that God may not be finished with them yet either. And they may come up in the end and and be a Christian, or they may end up being your supporters and advocates. We simply don't know. 
So temper your disappointment with those intimates whom you feel either betrayed by or from whom you're receiving opposition. And also think of this. When you look at the life of Joseph, and by the way, as you know, I'm sure, Joseph is a very, very key Old Testament picture of Christ. Joseph's life and his story and his person are, are key representations in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. And remember Joseph. Joseph, one of several sons, he's the favorite of his father, and because of that, he's ridiculed, mocked, and despised by his siblings. And so what do they do? They get rid of him. They do wrong by him. They oppose him. They sell him as a slave to Egypt. Joseph, by the way, is a slave in Egypt. I believe it's about 20 years before his rise to prominence in Pharaoh. Joseph goes through decades of hard times, a tough life. But when he is risen to power through this chain of events in which Pharaoh has those dreams, and then he becomes the ruler of Egypt... And then his brothers come down for food, and he's reunited with his father. His brothers fear after his father's death. Now he's going to exact his revenge. Now those dirty deeds we did to Brother Joe long ago, now he's going to get us because Dad's gone. And Joseph's response is this. You meant something for evil. God meant it for good. You tried to harm me. But even in your motive to harm me, you were accomplishing God's purpose because he wanted me down here in Egypt. He wanted me to end up as ruler of Egypt because the, in this fashion, in this capacity, I am the savior of Israel. Joseph becomes the savior of all of his brothers and all of their families and all of the future nation, the descendants of Abraham that God promised to build into a nation. So related to that, Joe looks back and he says, guys, you meant it for evil. You were my opposition. You hated me. You despised me. You sold me into slavery. God was working in all of that to get me where he wanted me to be so I could save you. Sometimes when you and I face opposition from our intimates, opposition from within, God may simply be allowing opposition to get us where he wants us, to get us where he wants us, that we wouldn't be otherwise. See, the truth is, you and I, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know where those, those intimate acquaintances of ours will be in the future. Maybe they'll be our advocates. Nor do we know where the fruit of opposition will lead us regarding God's greater plan. So if you face opposition from without and feel constrained, don't worry. Just keep doing God's will. If you feel opposition from within, be careful about how... Uh, how you judge or feel about those intimate opposers because you don't know what God has for them in the future and you don't know how he'll use their opposition in your life to accomplish his will. We simply don't know. I want to close this morning by telling you a little bit about the story of one of my favorite Christians related to this, this story. Um, Jen, you should find this story fascinating. And one of my favorite Christians uh, from the last, uh, not decade, what is it, 100 years? Century. Century was uh, Ni Tosheng. Ni Tosheng. And he's better known in the West as Watchman Ni. And if you've never read the life of Watchman Ni, it is a, an incredibly stirring and encouraging biography.
Watchman Nee was born in 1903 in Fuchow, China, and he was the third child. I think there were nine children. He was the third child of his parents, but he was the first son. And in Chinese culture back then, too, gimme boys. That was the thing. We wanted sons. Well, the, their first two children were girls. And they said okay to the first one, but they were disappointed with the second. How do I feel with four, Stan? That's what I want to know. What do I do? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm blessed. Anyway, so his mom, uh, Huao Ping, she prayed. And she, she told God, if you'll give me a son, like Hannah in the Old Testament, I'll give him back to you to be your servant all his days. And God answered her prayer and gave her a boy. And she was true to her word and gave him back to the Lord. And Watchman Nee became a Christian at age 17 in 1920. And his life was uh, radical in many ways right from the start. You know, for many of us, we become Christians, we get saved, and, and the light starts dawning slowly for us about God and us and the, the big picture and where we're going. And, and uh, to my shame, I say, I became a Christian and my life, and I told a guy this two and a half years later, my life looks pretty much the way it did before. And, and I'm doing all kinds of things that I know aren't good, aren't right. Watchman Nee wasn't like that. When he became a Christian, he basically said, it's all or nothing. And it was all. So he got baptized right away. He left the school he was in and went for a year to a Bible school. And this guy who was flunking Bible at school, he was. He was cheating in his Bible class at school. And he was a bright kid. He was a bright young man. There was no problem there. But he was flunking Bible class apart from cheating. He left school, went to Bible school for a year. And he just started voraciously devouring the scriptures. These, one of my heroes, uh, Jonathan Goforth was a missionary to China, also one of my heroes. One of the things these guys did was they had this routine where Goforth had most of the Bible memorized. He became blind in his old age. Uh, Jen, he, he lived through the Boxer Rebellion in China. Jonathan Goforth did in the 1900s. Um, they read their Bible so much they knew it by heart. And, if, and, and both of them faced uh, times in their life where that was good, which, which we'll get up to with Watchmen in a minute. But he began just this voracious study of the Scriptures. And he began immediately carrying his Bible at school. They were mocking him. They were ridiculing him. But he started witnessing to the other kids at school. And he started discipling the converts. And he, this became the course of his life. In fact, uh, he ended up in Europe, I think he was briefly in America, but primarily spent the rest of his life in China as an evangelist and a teacher. He established, one of the things he, he felt very strongly about was local churches. So when he would do what the early disciples and apostles did. He would go to a new area, he would proclaim the gospel, and as believers formed, this is what we support with Gospel for Asia today, they would raise up a local church. And out of that local church, they would raise up local leaders. Well, as his life went on, he had established hundreds and hundreds of churches in China. And his, his policy for himself related to support, he never asked for support. He never had a salary. He never had a stipend. He trusted God to provide for his needs, and God did. Well, he encouraged those that he discipled to do the same thing. Now, this was a fine thing. And no knock on that at all. But many of them faced some pretty stiff times and some pretty lean times because of that. 
So he felt a personal responsibility for them. So one of the things he did was he had a brother, George, who was a pharmacist. And he co-opted with George to start and actually to, to reinstitute a failed, George wasn't a businessman, he was a chemist, to uh, reinstitute, reinvigorate this failed chemical company. And under Watchman's tutelage, this chemical company, this pharmaceutical company, they started making the bucks, big bucks. Watchman Nee did that so that he could support his disciples, the folks he had mentored, the churches he had started. He was siphoning off all the money he could from the business to support these folks, these local church leaders. Now, guess what happened? Opposition from within. Watchman Nee had always said, quoting the Gospels, you're unworthy of Christ if you take your hand from the plow. So his disciples, the churches he has started, the men he has mentored, they point their fingers at him and said, Watchman, you've taken your hands from the plow. You've left full-time ministry where you belong to engage in the secular business. And guess what? They didn't allow him in their churches anymore. He couldn't preach in the churches he founded. This went on for years. It got worse. He goes into World War II period. Japan invades China. There's opposition. They're not sure they can even keep this company going. And frankly, all of the Chinese were facing privations because of the war. Well, especially these guys without any other means of support, these local pastors. So, for their good, watchmen under the Japanese occupation, they keep their pharmaceutical company going. And I don't remember what the requirements from the Japanese were, but that's what they do. So now guess what? Now he's accused of cooperating with the enemy. Well, later, talk about opposition. And when people would question him about it, he would say, uh, I don't believe God's called me to defend myself. He never defended himself, ever, publicly. Not once. And the guys that accused him and said, you can't preach in our churches, he was supporting them and they didn't know it. He was the one funding them and they didn't know it. This was the opposition from within he faced. Opposition from without was the Japanese occupation initially in the war. So he goes through the roller coaster of life. He never defends himself. He simply, the same way Jesus did, he committed himself to God. And he always asked himself when this stuff happened, what lesson does God have for me in this? In one of these occasions, someone said, why don't you defend yourself? And he said, uh, I'm Nito Shang. If you praise me to heaven, I'm Nito Shang. If you damn me to hell, I'm Nito Shang. This is it. What you say about me doesn't change who I am and who I am in God's economy and what he's called me to do or anything. It's just, it's human approval or not, and that's not my goal. So he didn't worry about it. But he'd ask himself, Lord, are there lessons here? You want me to learn. It wasn't that he deserved the opposition. It wasn't that it was biblical or founded. But he'd still humbly ask Lord the question, are there lessons here you want me to learn? And then he kept going about the things God had given him to do. He was supporting the very pastors and evangelists who said he couldn't teach in their churches. He was reinstituted, by the way, at some point here later. And the elders and the key leaders who were instrumental in this rejection of Watchman Nee basically recanted and repented. Then another kind of opposition came up in China, and that was communism. And, of course, the communists started the re-education in Christianity. Christians were to be re-educated 
And if you weren't cooperative, and Watchman Nee, in fact, Watchman Nee required many of his key subordinates to leave China. Many of them went to Taiwan at this time in the, in the late 40s and in the early 50s because he knew what would happen to them if they stayed in China. And what he knew would happen to them happened to him. He was arrested in 1952. And he spent the last 20 years of his life in Chinese prison camps. And he died in June of 1972 in prison. And the last letter he wrote not long before his death to his sister just spoke of joy and life was good. And this was the guy. But a remarkable example of a Christian facing opposition from outside, opposition from inside, and in the midst of it all, he's simply saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What lessons do I need to learn? And what's your goal for me? What, what is the work that I need to get done? This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't defend himself publicly. He didn't try and make sure his brothers understood. No, it's okay, guys. He kept his eyes on the prize. He kept doing the things God called him to do. And uh, Watchman Nee, again, if you've never read his story, uh, well worth your time, just... Uh, a great, great Christian witness. So anyway, for you and I, it's not a question of if we face opposition. It's when and what it looks like. Not if, when and what it looks like. And it could be opposition from those outside. Could be the government. Could be, I don't know, people that don't like us for one reason or another. Who knows? Or it could be opposition closer to home. Could be your friends. Could be your family. Could be your spouse, heaven forbid. Could be, you see what I'm saying though, the opposition can come from any direction. Whatever the opposition looks like, reassess, Lord, am I where you want me? Am I doing what you want me to do? If you're not, change course, obviously. But if you are, dig in your heels and finish the fight God's given you. Finish the work he's given you, whether there's opposition or not. Make sure you're completing the work God gives you. And remember to temper your judgment of those, especially intimates, that you feel opposition from because you don't know what God's going to do in their life in the future. And also because you don't know how God will use their opposition to get you where he wants you. So there's a lot for us to learn in opposition. Opposition isn't all bad. God still uses opposition to refine us and to accomplish his purposes. Opposition never defeats God's purposes. In Jesus' life, in Watchman Nee's life, in your life or in mine. If you're opposed, don't worry that God's will is, is going to be thwarted. It won't be. God can use, just as he did in the life of Joseph, God can use opposition to get you exactly where he wants you. So opposition does not equal defeat in God's economy. Opposition can move us exactly where God wants us to be. So put that bee under your bonnet and think about that this week. Let's pray. Lord, you are uh, not only a good God, but you're highly creative in the way you take things that look like they're entirely evil or deficient and you turn them upside down and use them for our good. You took the evil and the evil intent of Joseph's brothers and you create a savior for them and their families in Egypt. Or Lord, in Watchman Nee's life, you take opposition and you refine him and help him humbly ask you, are there things he needs to learn? 
Father, help us not to worry or fret when opposition rises, whether it's outside or closer to home. Help us to reassess before you and ask those hard questions of ourselves in your presence. And Lord, when we know we're where you want us, doing the things you want us to do, help us to, by your strength and by your spirit, persevere and finish the work you've given us. Lord, thanks that in your hand, opposition can actually put us exactly where you want us. Help us not to fear it. Help us not to cringe when we face it. Help us to rejoice that you'll use everything, even opposition, even hurtful rejection, Lord, to accomplish your divine purposes in our life. Help us to steadfastly keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who's faced opposition and gone through it, Lord, the one who's faced the same trials we do and has gone before us to show us the way. We want to uh, boldly, Lord, cast ourselves upon him and upon you by your spirit and trust ourselves in good times and bad into your care. In Jesus' name, amen.